Welcome back to In Our Own Defense Podcast. We're your hosts, Dr. Dolores Tarver and myself, Attorney A.D. Winters. In this episode of In Our Own Defense Podcast, we're discussing racial discrimination in military, in the military and UCMJ. We have our esteemed guests here, uh, Commanders uh, Chestain, uh, Randolph, and, and Lori Chestain. Uh, and we have uh, former Commissioner uh, and Judge Advocate General Quintilis Lawrence, and who's uh, um, running for judge there in Baton Rouge. Uh, and we're unpacking this. Uh, Dr. Tor uh, Dr. Tarver has gone over kind of the mental health impacts that may happen to your career, basically um, things you didn't know before you joined, those illuminations that happened in your career. And we've discussed how, how those challenges uh, may present mental uh, uh, issues and has the military changed its, its old previous way of looking at things of how uh, that stigma surrounding mental health. And, and everybody has agreed that there has been a, a fundamental uh, shift and, and a transformation uh, in the military as it relates to that. Uh, we're going to pivot the show in this segment to discuss uh, the, the, this current environment in America, the epiphany that America's having about its race, the awakening, as it were, or facing um, the adversity of, of racism. Um, Mr. Baldwin, James Baldwin says something is that you can't, um, you know, change everything that you face, but you can't change anything until you face it. And so that, that was a powerful statement that I always kind of used in my life. Uh, and considering that, I want to ask you first, um, uh, uh, Commissioner Lawrence, is considering the current awakening in America and the GAO study um, um, that reveal racial discrimination in the military, how does that impact your interaction with the subordinates and, and, and superiors? In, in the GAO study, you can find that GAO study just by Googling GAO study. You can watch the highlights of it and read it. It was a May 2019 study. Uh, the GAO's analysis of available data found that black, Hispanic, and male uh, service members were more likely than the female and uh, members uh, to be um, um, to be subjects of investigations or brought before um, UCMJ panels. Uh, the Marine, I mean, the Navy uh, has done a good job at, at trying to do that, but all of those service uh, chiefs, the, the JAG chiefs, had to go before Congress and they all agreed that the this GAO report was true. It was, it was showing this. Uh, they agreed military-wide training and education is necessary to transform uh, this, um, but it really brings out broader truths. The study that was done in May 2019, these kind of studies have happened back um, in the early 1900s when, when Truman first integrated the military, he saw there was already a difference and when you had the separate but equal in the same, they were serving to fight for their country and potentially die for their country and being treated different. Uh, we know that um, uh, uh, President, uh, um, President Roosevelt's wife went a row with the red tails. We know that President Truman said, let's integrate the military. And then even in the 70s, that was a, there was articles that showed that African-Americans, minorities were being overcharged in, in UCMJ actions. There was, there's law uh, review articles that I've read. But then in May 2019, the, the Government Accountability Organization said that this is still happening today. So Congress brought, in this awakening, Congress brought these JAGs uh, chiefs forward. And they said that um, the Navy can't be under any illusions about the fact that racism is alive and well in the country uh, and that it can't be under any illusions that, that the Navy doesn't have it 
Uh, and so the Navy emphatically unequivocally denounces racism, but I'm really concerned about the so what, now what, and, and, and that was just the Navy's position and the Army had a very similar position, the Air Force had a very similar uh, position, uh, but I really wanna know uh, from you, um, um, Mr. Lawrence, what is, how does that impact you personally and what does that do with your interaction with your subordinates and your superiors? It will be shocking, but uh, it doesn't change the way in which I interact with my superiors or my subordinates, because this is something that we've known for a long time. Uh, there are two people that, that realize who and when non-judicial punishment and UCMJ action is taken, uh, and that's the JAG and the commander. Because as we know, in the military, the military justice system does not belong to the lawyers, it belongs to the commander. So when we as JAGs go and advise our commanders on what we think their action should be, what we recommend they do, we know the, the who, what, where, when, and why of what's going on in our various units. So it's not, it's, this isn't something that's, that's, that's a surprise to me, the GAO study. This is something that we've known for a long time. It's like when somebody comes out with something and says, you know, that in the black community, this is happening, this is happening. And we're like, yeah, we've been knowing this for time immemorial. So no, this is not something that's new to us. How, it doesn't change any, any, any manner in which I interact with my superiors because at every junction, I try to be what Thurgood Marshall's considered himself as on the Supreme Court, which is the conscience of the court. I try to be the conscience in the room. When I'm advising a commander as to what he or she should do, uh, I advise them to handle it at the lowest level. Now, there are some things that, of course, you can't handle at the lowest level, things that are just beyond the, 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 the thought process of saying, hey, give them a fit, Article 15 and, and let it go. Article 15 being non-judicial punishment, where you basically slap them on the, on the wrist and tell them, don't do that no more, and I'm going to be watching you. Uh, there are some things that you just can't do that with, but there are a lot of things that you can. And I think that what happens is we blow things out of proportion when it is certain people. Now, certain times it's because they are always looking at those people because of who they are. And then when they get them for the one small thing, then they give them the Article 15. Then there's the other small thing. Then they give them another Article 15. Then there's another small thing. And then it's like, okay, you know, it's, it's, it's time out for this. This is, this is a bad apple and we need to take care of it. But a lot of those times it's because those things that Dr. Tarver brought up, those psychological issues that are affecting that person, that hasn't been taken care of. And so this soldier, this sailor, this airman, or this Marine is constantly getting into what we were going to call trouble. And then they end up getting separated or they end up getting uh, court-martialed. So it won't change how I interact because I'm always trying to be the conscience of, of, that, of that office. Yeah, thank you. And I, and I think that being the conscious in the, in the conference room is, is I think it's, it's, it's critical. Uh, would you guys, um, do you believe that, uh, that to the chest stains, do you feel that as in your position in the Navy, in the course and scope of your 29 plus year, uh, your 30 years, uh, congratulations, uh, 30 years, uh, 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 Randolph, that do, 
have you noticed, you know, I know it's not quite men of courage with Cuba uh, cutting movie, but, but when you watch it, has there been any sea change uh, for you? And, and how does that make, how, when you were enlisted, did you interact different than kind of now as it relates to uh, race, racism that may have, uh, perceived racism that may have existed in the Navy? I like the JAG. Uh, I don't think uh, it changed my interactions uh, with seniors or subordinates. I knew that I had to be, you know, stellar in my conduct and my performance in all regards, you know, and so, I didn't let that kind of stuff change the way I dealt with anyone. However, um, those things uh, did happen. Uh, and, I, you know, I, it's hard. It's always hard to nail down if it's racial discrimination or whatnot. Uh, but what you did see uh, on the enlisted side was you saw, I, you know, personally, I saw more blacks go to UCMJ uh, than, uh, than others. And then uh, when I converted over to officer, you know, there weren't many black um, officers around. But what I did see uh, when I did have a, a black captain, uh, I saw him uh, getting picked on, you know, picked on more than any other CO out there. Although his, his uh, resume was stronger than anyone else's out there, you know. And then when I got in command, you know, all the years that I had behind me and the reputation that I uh, developed uh, of performance, it didn't matter. You know, as soon as I got in command, four weeks later, I had an investigation on my lap, you know, and then I continued to have investigations. And I couldn't tell you uh, why that was the case because my performance was still there. Um, so um, I never let the seniors see that i never let the subordinates see that i just knew i had to continue on and be uh, as good as i could be oh uh, <laughs> sorry <laughs> um so for me uh, i actually came in um straight out of college i was not prior enlisted so i think that makes me the youngest person in the room um, but <laughs> as far as, uh, as what I've seen and, and what's going on today, um, just echoing what everyone else has said, it, it has not changed how I deal with my superiors or my subordinates. Um, I think, you know, kind of growing up with the, the military background, being an army brat, you know, I'd be... I'd be, it'd be silly if I said things like, oh, I didn't see that you were white or you were black or you were, you know, Asian or whatever, but I see you as a sailor, I see you as a soldier, I see you as a Marine, I see you as an airman, I see you as a Coastie first, I see you as someone who serves, right, and I respect the fact that you're willing to put on the same uniform that I put on, and, you know, people don't necessarily think about the gravity of what it is that we have pledged to do but if if time calls for it you know you and i have both signed up to essentially die for this country if need be um so i i, I take that view on it and you know i my dad is a command sergeant major so he always taught me you know you take care of the troops first Every day, you take care of the troops first. You make sure the troops eat first. So 
coming into the military as an officer, I carry that with me. I take care of my troops first, you know, and I see them as troops, um, not necessarily as a racial group or an ethnic group or, you know, however young people want to hang out these days kind of group. I see you as a military member first, and I see you as someone who is willing to put, you know, your life on the line for this country just like I am. Um, so as far as what's going on, I, I have not allowed that to change how I deal with my superiors and my subordinates. Uh, Follow-up question, and, and I want all of you, you have all mentioned similar things, which is that we take these things, we know there's bias, differences in treatment of people um, in terms of how they're they're punished in terms of how they're promoted, in terms of uh, how they may be forcibly asked to exit of the military and under what circumstances. And I'm hearing all of you say that on some level, you eat a lot of that. You eat it because I have to focus. I have to focus on my job. I have to take care of the soldiers. I have to, um, I have to govern myself by a certain standard. But how are you affected by seeing that and recognizing that, okay, well, there's, that's true, that exists, this bias exists, this racism exists, not, as you said um, earlier, Commander Chastain, not the whole entity of the military, but there are definitely people that are exhibiting racist behavior. How do you balance those dynamics of, of your dual roles in the military? I'm still, I take me wherever I go. So I'm still a black man, I'm still a black woman, I'm still a mom, I'm still a, a husband. I'm, all of these things and I'm seeing some of these things happen but I still have to govern myself how do you balance those multiple identities in the face of all of those things that you're seeing I guess I'll start um it gets back to that faith um having that faith and leaning on my family um Absolutely, you know, I look to my parents, I look to my grandmothers um, for strength and guidance. Uh, I'm sure if we were not uh, on national podcast radio, Randy would tell you uh, that he has, he has caught many days when I have had bad days. And in an effort to not not let my bad days affect those that I work with, I have brought that home. And that's why I said before, try not to bring anything home. Um, I have brought that home. And, and thankfully, he, he is in a place where he understands somewhat uh, what I've been through. And I only say somewhat because absolutely men and women, black men, black women have different experiences in the military, but uh, similar in some ways, so he's able to understand where I'm coming from, um, and just to kind of live in that that duality. You just for me, I dig deep. I dig deep, and uh, you know, you you kind of push on. You have your days when when you cry, you have your days when you want to yell, um, but you do also have days when things happen and. Sometimes all you can do is laugh because what, what else can you do at this point? You're just like, like that really just happened, seriously. Um, 
but you, like you said, you eat it and you push through. Um, but it is hard. It's, it's not something to take lightly. Um, I think anyone who, who wants to be successful and anyone who has those, those added pressures of race and dealing gender bias, dealing with those biases, um, can understand that it is a tiring process. Uh, it is hard to remain motivated at times, but like I said, you dig deep and, and you look around you. And for me, you know, I, I did join the military with an understanding that as cheesy as it sounds, you know, it's not just about me. Um, there is ultimately a greater good. And uh, now also I have my two little boys that I look at every day. Um, and if nothing else, you know, I, I hold on to knowing that every little bit that I do, everything that I go through, um, I go through for them in hopes that the future will be better for them. And, and that helps me get through. I, I, um, I, I really appreciate you joining that uh, to us. I, I've been listening. I was having an alarm issue. Uh, recently to, to both, you know, sets of panelists, and I want to do this before we take our next break, is that uh, recently the U.S. Marine Corps banned the Confederate flag. The Army is open to, uh, to renaming uh, the Confederate General's base, uh, the base of the name after them. General Charles Q. Brown, Jr. Uh, has been named as the U.S. Army, uh, the U.S. Air Force Chief of Staff, which is the first service chief. We have the uh, first African-American Joint Chief of Staff, Colin Powell. Um, and then Kayla Wright, uh, who is the Chief Master Sergeant of the U.S. Air Force, the top in life. Uh, he, he said, uh, who am I? Wright began. He wrote a tweet uh, where he says, I am a black man who happens to be the Chief Master Sergeant of the Air Force. I am George Floyd. I am Philando Castile. I am Michael Brown. I am Alton Sterling. I am Tamir Rice. Uh, and then the Air Force did a uh, show with the current chief of staff before General Brown uh, uh, comes on board and takes over. And they, uh, they really unpacked it. Uh, and it's because the Air Force has been, um, there was a study that came out, a report came out that, that the Air Force had essentially been criminally hiding and covering up their constant racism as it relates to, to military justice against African-Americans. And so... Um, that's important that he's seeing, that they're saying that the two top leaders of the Air Force are admitting that this racism is happening, that they're admitting that needs to be a fundamental shift. And they're concerned about when their soldiers and sailors and airmen and Marines are leaving the base, could they be unarmed and could they be uh, killed uh, while they're out in the community? You don't have your uniform on generally uh, in the weekend. And so... Uh, I'm concerned about what is it that you would wish or what you suggest going forward to these leaders who are asking for doing pollings, who are asking for support, what would you recommend to them in order for us to overcome uh, some of this racism that exists in the military? I will start with you, Commissioner Lawrence. Well, uh, we we are big on training in the in, in the armed forces, and while training is not going to change people's hearts, 
it will at least give you an opportunity to understand where the other person is. And I believe that if we take these issues and bring, you have to have the conversation. You got to bring this out to the forefront so that people can see that it hurts us, it pains us, and it causes us to have, uh, have second guesses about some serving in the military, some about our government in, in general. And, and this has to be a conversation that's held on multiple occasions. It can't be a once, once over a town hall meeting with the CG and then it's done. And we've, we've, we've checked that block and we're good to go on that training. It's not, it's not a small arms fire where you go out and you shoot your nine millimeter, you get a 40 out of 40 and you're good. No, this is something that has to constantly be brought up so as to make sure that we address it the right way. And I, I believe that it should be a part of our training in general. In the Army, you go to basic training, you learn how to shoot an AT4, you learn how to shoot an M16, you learn how to low crawl, you learn how to high crawl. We need to have some training on how to deal with these types of issues because they're here. And it's not just minority issues, it's LGBTQ, it's, 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 it's sexual harassment, it's all of that stuff. When we have an issue, we have seemingly taken the approach that we're gonna create a program that addresses it. We have the SHARP, sexual harassment uh, program, program that deals with ensuring that we as service members know what sexual harassment looks like. We know how to combat it. We know how to report it. We have a process, a program. I, mean, I think the Air Force was the first to have the uh, 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 Special Victims Council that gave sexual uh, assault victims their own lawyer to represent what they wanted in cases wherein their accuser was being court-martialed, but the victim has an opportunity to be heard. So we address these problems when they come up. Well, this problem has come up. It has reared its ugly head in a manner in which we cannot ignore it. And so we have to institute something, some type of training in our daily activity as soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines to address it. So for you, training is definitely a fundamental aspect of being able to address this. To the extent that we are at least addressing it, because again, like they said in the 60s, when we were trying to get the 64 Civil Rights Bill passed, you can legislate, but you can't change a man's heart. But we can at least put the training in there. And then through, through us doing it, through what's going on with our, our fellow citizens who are external to the military, I think that it has to be a multi-pronged approach to get to the heart of the matter. We'll handle it where we are and our legislators, our senators, our president, our, our, our congressmen, our state representatives, our governors, and they'll have to handle it from that perspective. But we have to do something on our own because we are an independent entity to the civilian society. We're different and we have to handle things differently. Commander Chastain. Um, I definitely agree with the training piece and uh, continuing on with the conversation. Um, it's interesting. Uh, I used to be an instructor for the intermediate level leadership course um, for the Navy and, and what that course did uh, it's for 
we call them department heads, um, might be company commanders in the Army, I'm not sure, that, that type level. Um, and what the Navy found was at, at the top levels, um, we had leaders who were not necessarily making the best decisions ethically. Um, and we figured out that, you know, you get all the training in the world on how to drive a ship and what not to do, um, but you don't really get down to the morality and the ethics of leadership. Uh, so it started with our senior leadership course and then it trickled down in these, these different levels. Um, and what we, what we did is we would allow students to have those hard conversations. Um, it was not a PowerPoint driven course. Uh, it was very much a student conversation driven course and it would focus on, we did um, MBTI, we did you know, studies of self, uh, we talked about unconscious bias and you know, how do you fix something that you might not be aware of. Uh, we talked about you know, listening to others, being open um, to take to take direction, constructive criticism, um, and we would we would actually simulate some some hard situations and put the students in and kind of let them them talk it out. Uh, I'm interested to go back. I, I would love to go back and see if the curriculum has changed any. Um, the back then it was not so focused on on race. Um, there was a little bit of that, but I'm, I'm curious if now maybe those conversations are being had more in the classroom. I, I don't know. Um, but I'm all about, you know, having the, the conversations and creating a space for that conversation to be had. Um, it is a difficult conversation to have. It is an uncomfortable conversation to have. Um, but I think, uh, Recently, in, in my office and, uh, at the Pentagon, uh, we, we had a guest speaker and we were allowed to have those uncomfortable conversations and to ask those questions. Um, and I think it's important. You know, we, we can't fix the world's problems in an hour. Um, but starting those conversations is extremely important. So I'm glad to see that that's happening and I hope that it continues happen, to happen more. And um, I, I, would add, I would add to this, you know, uh, this piece, uh, I won't uh, take away from anything our, our esteemed guests have said, Dr. Tarver, but I, look, I, I feel the military's had plenty of time to get this right. They've had plenty of time to get it right. I served 23 years and it didn't change from then. It didn't change. I had, we had, I had guys who were saying that President Obama was not their president. President Obama is the commander in chief of the United States military. And there were guys who I would counsel, like, if you say it again, I'm going to give you, you're going to be brought up on charges. You could be brought up on charges for doing this. And so in this entire conversation, you've not heard either of these military officers or me as a former officer disparage the president of the United States, even though I may differ from him politically, the, the concepts and the construct has to change. They could fix this because you could fix anything. Like, like, uh, like Mr. Lawrence said, when the Army wanted to, you know, go after the, the sexual assault, when the military wanted to go after, they got creative and started fixing it. You, you disincentivize that kind of behavior. You can disincentivize that kind of behavior. You can't tell me that you can't figure out who is the bad apple when it comes to racism. 
You can't tell me that we don't, literally, we don't have any tracking system for non-judicial punishment to tell me what ethnicity the people are who've been receiving these punishments, who've been receiving these demotions, or, or worse still, just getting a bad OER. What you don't even understand is that a bad OER based on racism, it's a death knell in someone's career. They could just give you a eh, OER. And then when you're going before an objective board of people who have been vetted and all of this, that board can look at that paperwork. When it gets up to the Pentagon and the Army staff, the Navy staff, Marines, and, and the Air Force staff is looking for who they're going to promote, who they're going to give more, more authority to, more uh, power to, who they're going to promote, who they trust more, they're not doing it to people with eh, OERs. And you can get away with racism just like that. And then you come after them for reporting it. There's an Article 138 that the United uh, Uniform Code of Military Justice, we need to um, empower people to be able to do blind 138s on officers who were exhibiting racism. Because you can open up an investigation on that officer when they're doing this thing based on race. And they don't, may not use noose, you know, throw a, the noose or an N-word or, or, uh, or say bad, some of these other bad behaviors, but they do it subliminally and it's hard, it is challenging. I'm not gonna make it like it's easy, but you have to do it rightfully so. You can't say, oh, we're all one team and literally have a base named after a Confederate general. You can't say we're all one team and knowing that you have a Confederate general named after Camp Hood. And so, uh, uh, that was Camp Hood, now Fort Hood. These things, you can't talk, double talk when we're talking about something that's clear, racism. Because if you're looking at everybody, everybody's wearing the same uniform. Their skin may be different, but you don't get the luxury of not doing something. Something has to be done about it, and I mean now, and that means the Congressional Black Caucus has to be on board to go in and fix it, or we defund some of these initiatives in the military. I don't think you deserve an F-18 Raptor. I don't think you need a new uh, uh, um, aircraft carrier if you can't fix racism. You don't get to have a new toy. We can, we can lower your budget. Because this is tax dollars. And so I'm not gonna, I'm, I'm not gonna play this wishy-washy, hand-wringling, we gotta take our time. We have to take these generals to task. If you're not talented enough to do it, take these secretaries to task. If you're not smart enough to do it, then we can get somebody else in there to do the job. If you're not talented enough to do it, if you're not smart enough to do it, we can get somebody else in there to do the job. You can get creative. We got war colleges. We got an air war college, a Navy war college, and an army war college. And you telling me you can't get that job done? Then let's get somebody else in there to do it. The chairman of the Joint Chief of Staff can go take a picture across the street after, you, after they send, send some, some tear gas on them kids. The secretary of the fence can go over there and take a picture. Then you can fix racism today. And that's why I stand on it. And I'm, you know, uh, we're going to take a break before I, I, I get in trouble and get fired off my own show. <laughs> but we will be back after this. You're on In Our Own Defense podcast with Dr. Dolores Tarver and I. And we'll be right back with our guest on racism uh, and racial discrimination in the military. Thank you. <laughs> 